All right. The scripture reading for today is from the book of Acts, chapter 11 and chapter 13. You can follow along in the bulletin there if you would like to look along. If you just like to listen, that's fine too. Acts chapter 11, in the first three verses of chapter 13. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and, through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers— Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Well, we've been reviewing, looking at the mission, the vision of Grace Meridian Hill together for the past several weeks, and just a chance for us to remind ourselves, why are we here? What kind of church are we trying to be, especially in light of our big move and our grand reopening, our reintroduction of ourselves to our local neighborhood in the coming weeks? It's just a good thing for us to be on the same page together and to be galvanized and energized together in a common sense of calling and a common sense of mission. You might find in your bulletin a little slip, and insert that has our vision summarized for you. I'm just going to read through it quickly. And this is what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. Our vision, a true neighborhood. Our mission to build a gospel community that is spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, 
and beyond. Let me say a word of prayer before we look at this some more. Jesus, we're asking for your help to clarify for us what you're calling us to be. And we pray that you would help us to understand uh, who you are in a way that energizes our hearts and who you're calling us to be as a church in a way that energizes our hearts. Uh, We pray that you would be here now. We do need your help. Our time is wasted if we don't have the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. So please come. And we're making ourselves available to, uh, to you. We're really coming to you and saying, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. As cities go, one scholar writes, Antioch had everything to offer. It was a very cosmopolitan city, a large and vibrant commercial center in ancient days, the capital of the province of Syria. Some describe Antioch as perhaps the third most significant city in all of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. It was actually known as Antioch the Beautiful, uh, had that nickname because of its stunning architecture and beautiful buildings. It had large athletic stadiums that drew thousands of spectators. And it was known for its sexual freedom. In fact, its exotic dancers were famous in the Mediterranean world. Antioch was a big deal. And it is here in Antioch that we find one of the most remarkable stories of what the grace of God can do in a city and to a neighborhood. It's here in Antioch in Scripture that we find one of the most clear models and examples of the kind of church we are trying to be here at Grace Meridian Hill in this neighborhood. From time to time, I have people ask me, as they hear about the vision of the church, well, what sort of inspiration do you all have? What kind of models and examples have gone before you that you're trying to emulate and copy? Well, here is one answer. Maybe not a a model, an example that we can touch and look at in present-day time, though there are certainly some of those that we can point to. But here's one in Scripture that can give us hope That this vision, in fact, is possible by the grace and the power of God. So as we finish up this series of reviewing our vision and mission, and by the way, if you've been traveling, I know a lot of people have been in and out over the last couple of weeks, and especially if you're a member or a committed attender of this church, I want to invite you to go to the website and listen to the past four sermons, not because they're so great, but just simply because it's great for us to be all on the same page and to have a common understanding and common language of who we are and why we are here. So what was the big deal about Antioch? Well, first of all, the church in Antioch was a cross-cultural community. According to history uh, historians, the city Antioch was an incredibly ethnically diverse city. In the mix were Persians and Jews and Africans and Greeks and Chinese and many other nationalities. As we're told in verse 19, up until this point, 
the new Christians in this movement of the gospel were indeed going about and sharing what is described here as the good news of Jesus. That God himself really did show up on the human scene. That he did come as a human being in order to serve as our representative. So that in love, he might take the death that we should have died and he might live the life that we should have but did not and could not live. So that we might be right with God and that we might be right with the world that he's made and given to us. Good news that has been shared throughout the region. And yet we're told here in verse 19, up to this point, only among Jews, among people of Jewish descent or those who are already familiar with the Jewish scriptures. But now in verse 20, We see something different. We're told that men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to who? Greeks. Non-Jews also. People who were totally non-Jewish, ethnically, culturally, religiously. It was the first time this started happening in the short history of the Christian church. And it happened first here in Antioch. And we find some of this cultural diversity later reflected in the church's leadership. In our second reading, chapter 13 of the book of Acts, Luke tells us about five prophets and teachers in the church. Among them were Barnabas, who was Jewish, but from Cyprus, sort of part of the Jewish diaspora in the Gentile world, sort of a bicultural guy. Simeon called Niger, which means black, literally, Presumably because he himself was a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, he would have been a North African, probably from an area in modern-day Libya. So he was probably of Arabic descent. You see, glimpses of different people of all sorts of background that by the love of Jesus and the grace of God are being brought harmoniously together which doesn't necessarily mean without conflict. Cross-cultural community is necessarily so messy. But in community, together by the grace of God. As one scholar put it, Antioch was at one and the same time a Hellenistic city, a Greek city, a Roman city, and a Jewish city. If the gap between the Jewish and Gentile worlds was to be bridged anywhere, it could be expected to happen in this cosmopolitan center. In other words, there was a unique opportunity given the flourishing cultural diversity in Antioch for the church to reflect its neighborhood and therefore to model what God originally intended humankind to be. A colorful mix of people with differences and commonalities brought together by the love of Jesus. Would it be going too far to say in paraphrase of what I just read by that scholar and historian, that if the gap between racial worlds in D.C. is to be bridged anywhere, that perhaps it could be expected to happen in this cosmopolitan neighborhood often described as the most diverse region in the city. 
Is there not an opportunity here in this particular place amongst this particular people by the power of the good news of Jesus? The church in Antioch was a cross-cultural community. It was also a spiritually diverse community. Historians tell us that every religious movement in the ancient world was found in Antioch. Whether if it was the cult of Zeus or in Apollo, or the Syrian worship of Baal and the mother goddess, whether it was the mystery religions of the East, or witchcraft and astrology, it was all there and all very, very present. And you notice here, though, that in spreading the word to the Greeks, to the non-Jews, that inevitably that meant that the gospel was being communicated for the first time to polytheists, people that worshipped many gods, people for whom the idea that there is only one God and he showed up in the person of Jesus would have been completely new or even completely offensive. And yet, people started believing for the first time. A certain community culture was cultivated. A certain kind of authenticity of relationship. A certain energy of pouring out their lives into the lives of their local neighbors became a regular dynamic in the church in Antioch. Lives were being changed. We're told in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And again in verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Whether if it's people that had never heard anything like this before, the story of Jesus, and that might count some of you. Or maybe some who might have said, well, I grew up in a church, I was always in a church, but I never let God into my life. Maybe that's some of your story. Or maybe it's, I always thought that being a Christian or being a religious person simply meant living a good moral life, but I never heard the grace of God. And I never let my heart be changed by the freedom of knowing the love of God. How did it happen by an organic movement of people sharing their lives and sharing the story of Jesus telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus according to verse 20. Did you notice we don't even know the names of the people that started this church? That's almost always how God does incredible things in different places around the world and in history. We're just told that they're men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're not religious professionals. They're not celebrity evangelists. They were ordinary people like you. Simply turning to their immediate right and to their immediate left and saying, Dear neighbor, I love you. Come into my home. Can we garden together? Can we play together? Can we raise our kids together? Can we live life together? And can I, in the meanwhile, share my faith in Jesus and my love for God with you? Like some of you, some of them were newcomers to the city. Some of them were longtime indigenous members of the community. God used a rich collection of people to create a spiritually diverse community. The church in Antioch was also, thirdly, a gospel community, this language that we've been using. We see here in the middle of the passage a leader by the name of Barnabas who came down from Jerusalem. And during his time with the church, 
we start to see all these signs of what we would call a gospel community. Uh, We see him engaged in this ministry of encouragement. Barnabas here in verse 23, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He's in their lives and he's saying, you can do it. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but God will help you. I know it's hard to humble yourselves to your roommates and to your neighbors and in your marriages and with your friends. But Jesus did it and the spirit of Jesus lives in you. I know it's hard to overcome some of these objections if you're processing the Christian faith. But do you know it's happened very recently? It can happen to you as well. Encouragement, cheerleading, spurn each other on to believe the promises of God and the power of God at work amongst them. But not just encouragement, in-depth teaching. The nurture of the new Christians and the long-time Christians. We're told for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. They gathered with them in community. They taught great numbers of people. They were in each other's lives. They were eating together. They were in intimate fellowship together. They were coming alongside each other. They were serving one another and empowering one another to serve. You notice Barnabas didn't just say, hey, I'm just going to do this on my own. He said, I know just the right person for this job. So he goes out to Tarsus. He recruits a young man who was converted just a few years before, a man named Saul, who would eventually change his name and be known as Paul, the great apostle. And he said, come on board, let's do this together, working as a team. Gospel community. And lastly, the church in Antioch we see was a neighborhood community. A church that wasn't just all about itself. It always had an orientation and a commitment to those outside of themselves. They didn't just serve themselves, they served those around them. They cared for their neighbors' bodies as well as their souls. They met physical and material needs, not just so-called spiritual needs. They had a vibrant compassion ministry. We're told in verses 27 through 30 that there was a bad famine to the south. And so the Christians in Antioch organized an effort to provide help. The disciples were told, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Responding to brothers and sisters in need, loving and serving and caring for the poor by initiating relationship with them. And we have every reason to believe that they did this locally as well, serving the poor and sharing their possessions. And yet, do you notice they did this not doing it in a way that alienates alienates people that have social wealth and power, but actually by including all kinds of people in this sort of ministry. In Acts 13 and verse 1, again, this list of different leaders, you notice Menaean was in that list. One who's described as having been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch without going into all the history. That means he was some kind of an aristocrat or some kind of person in elite society. 
You see, somehow Antioch found some way to love the poor and yet also embrace the professional. To care for people of all different walks of life and to bring them together in community in this strange and mysterious way that you see all too seldom. A cross-cultural community, a spiritually diverse community, a gospel community, a neighborhood community. And dear friends, just a simple word before we move on. Just a word of assurance that this combination of values and priorities that we've been talking about, that make up the vision of this church, it's not something that we're making up. It comes from Scripture itself. It comes from the Word of God and from history showing the ways that God has actually shown up and moved in many different places and many different people. There is biblical precedent to this very card that you hold in your hand. Which means the Holy Spirit has created this sort of church that we're longing to be and become. Which means, dear friends, take heart. He can do it again. He's done it before, so He can do it again. Do you believe that? Will you labor for it together? Will you pray and long and dream that this sort of church, a church like the church in Antioch, might actually show up here in this neighborhood? I want to close with just three observations, really in the form of questions. Three things that the story of Antioch raises as we look at that story and as we consider our context. And then we're done. Three questions that the story of Antioch and that church raises for us. Number one, how will our neighbors describe us? As they get to know us, as they hear about us, how will our neighbors describe us? At the end of verse 26, this is what we're told. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Do you know why that is so fascinating? Everywhere and all throughout human history, every time you go into the history books or you just look at the world around us, even today, every nationality had their own religion. And so if you were Greek, well, you just were raised to worship Greek gods. Or if you were Phoenician, for example, you worshipped Phoenician gods. You did religion the Phoenician way. And you weren't even called a worshipper of Greek gods or an adherent of the Phoenician faith. You were just called Greek. You were just called Phoenician. Because that's the way it worked. Then here in Antioch, suddenly... There is a faith that drew in people from every racial group, from every social class, from every nationality, and suddenly nobody knew what to call them. Because suddenly there's a Greek person who's now a follower of Jesus, and there's a Phoenician who now bows their knee to the God of the Hebrew Bible. There's a Persian who actually aligns himself with the story of Christ. 
And there's the Jew that celebrates the grace of God. So what do you call them? And here in Antioch, they started calling them Christians, which in the Greek language simply means followers of Christ or those who belong to Christ. It was in Antioch that that label was used for the first time in history. I mean, you think about it. The strangeness of the story of Jesus and the kinds of mixed communities that he can create. The question for us is, will we so be followers of Jesus and so be defined by the grace of God that people in the neighborhood won't exactly know what to call this community Because who we are and what defines us defies normal categories of identity. Is that the black church or is that the white church? And what's going on? I hear it's led by a Korean. (laughs) Keep them guessing. Is that a church that welcomes people who aren't Christians? Or is it a church that just strives to nurture the faith of Christians. Is that a church for professionals or is that a church for the poor? Is that a liberal church or is it a conservative church? Is it a church that cares about personal morality or is it a church that cares about social justice? Is it a church that cares about its own people or a church that cares about its local neighbors? And for us, because we are defined by our loyalty to Jesus and the story of the radical grace of God changing us, could we be a community that ruptures traditional categories of classification? This or that, left or right, him or her, this is how it is. Will Grace Meridian Hill gather such a surprising mishmash of people such a counterintuitive mix of neighbors that the neighborhood would have to come up with a new way to describe our church. That at the end of the day, that our neighborhood would be left with no other way to describe Grace Meridian Hill than to say, well, I guess we just have to say they are followers of Jesus. And know that even the name Christian, which carries a lot of baggage today, doesn't it? Maybe some of you aren't so sure you want to be identified publicly with that title. Maybe some of you are hesitant to become one because of that title. I know that we might be a community that gives new and fresh definition to what it means to be a Christian in the neighborhood. Second question, will we be a praying church? A praying church. Because you know, prayer is the only way that this vision, this crazy, nutty vision, will come to fruition. I mean, do you realize that? That humanly speaking, everything that we've just described and everything we have on that little card and everything that's behind it that this vision, this mission is utterly, humanly speaking, utterly impossible. 
for lives to be changed, for people that have no background in the Christian faith to come and believe, to build authentic, warm, brotherly and sisterly and family-like relationships to people that are naturally selfish and afraid of commitment, for people of different races and cultures and ethnicities to come together in harmony, mutual respect, more than that, with the honesty of dealing with real wounds and talking through issues of racism and stories past, as well as struggles present, to be able to forgive and to love, to weep together, to rejoice together, to be a community that brings together rich and poor and everyone in between, for people to be willing to hang in there as we figure out together what it means to be in community, not because it's easy, but because it's right, Not because it's easy, but because God calls us by His grace to love. This vision is impossible. (laughs) Which means we're setting up goals for ourselves that are doomed to fail if God doesn't show up. And to that we can say, Hallelujah. To be a part of a vision, as I like to say, that's so impossible, it keeps you up at night, and yet so impossible by the grace of God, it gets you up in the morning because there's no better passion and no better vision to pursue than one that depends upon God. And prayer is one of the best signs that we're believing that God must show up for this church to be healthy and thriving in this neighborhood. Will we be a praying church like the church in Antioch was a praying church? In Acts 13, verses 2 and 3, we're told this, that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. In other words, when did the Christians in Antioch get this new sense of a new ministry and opportunity, this new strategy to take two guys, Barnabas and Saul, and to send them out to build new churches, to reach new kinds of people, this new idea, where did it come about? When? When they were worshiping and praying and fasting. And once they got this new idea, what was their first reaction Their first next step, the top of the list on the to-do item, pray. Friends, when we get a new idea, a new idea for a new way to love on our local neighbors or to build community internally or to worship God more exuberantly and wholeheartedly, a new way for new teaching or new service or new community or new mission, A new sense of this is what we ought to do. What will be our first response? I'll tell you what mine is by nature, by instinct. It's to analyze. It's to manage risk. It's to call a meeting. It's to start planning. What is it for you? What's your first instinct? Listen to what one scholar says on this point. Worship, fasting, and prayer were the marks of the community in Antioch. 
which God chose to use mightily for the spread of the gospel. Ever since then, great missionary movements have been traced to people on their knees. There has never been a church that accomplished significant things for God that was not strong in prayer and spiritual devotion. That God would give us as our first instinct a longing to go to Him. For Him to make the impossible possible. To cry out, confessing our foolishness, asking for His wisdom. To know our tendency, humbly to know our tendency, to screw things up and to ask for God to lead. And to commit ourselves to follow. Would we have the expectation that new ideas for ministry and new relationships and new ways of caring for people both in the church and outside the church will be birthed in worship and fasting and prayer? That it'll happen there. You want a good brainstorm session? Let's get on our knees. Let's let the Spirit give us some new ideas. And let's make a habit of what you might call timeout prayers. Right? Maybe an idea does come up or maybe you're in a conversation with a person about something that maybe you want to do as a community or maybe just something in your own lives. Maybe you're struggling and you're talking with a roommate or a friend. Or maybe you're in a neighborhood group and you're discussing some aspect of life that you're struggling through or struggling with together. Or maybe you're thinking about a neighbor or a dear friend and you don't know exactly how to connect with them on a deeper level. Time out. (laughs) To offer up a time out prayer. To say, look, can we just interrupt what we're doing right now and stop and say, can we pray? It can be for 30 seconds. It can be for five minutes. It can be for five seconds. To say, we so need the help and the guidance of God. That we're going to interrupt this meeting. We're going to stop in the middle of our neighborhood group discussion. Whoever said you can only pray in the beginning and the end of a meeting? (laughs) Right, Christians? Right? These habits we get into. To interrupt right when you feel that need. When you run out of ideas. When you say, with a shrug of your shoulders, what do we do next? Pray. And make a habit of it. So that over time... It becomes an instinct. Interrupt yourself with, hold on, time out, prayers. Will we be that sort of a church? And thirdly, lastly, third question, are we ready to suffer for this mission? How did the church in Antioch get started in the first place? Did you notice? You see, in verse 20, it says, Some men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began speaking to Gentiles, also telling them the good news about Jesus, right? So that's the beginning of the church. But what prompted these individuals in the first place to venture out to Antioch? Verse 19. They were strategically sent out after a polished ministry plan that clearly demonstrated the victory of Jesus? No. They were scattered 
by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. It was the tragic martyrdom of one of their leaders, this story told in earlier pages of the book of Acts. It was through the surprise of pain and heartache that this church was started and that this church found its power. The sorrow of the saints was the seed of the church in Antioch. And this is what I mean. There is such a temptation, starting with me, a temptation for all of us to build a church that we can boast about. To be a community that is looked upon as a successful ministry, as a relevant ministry, as a community that is making a difference. For goodness sakes, it's all right here in this pretty little card. Neat and tidy, polished and presentable. But to really make a difference, to really bear fruit... Are we ready for this? Are we ready for the Holy Spirit to use our suffering? Whether if it's suffering in the form of you actually giving your heart away in relationship, taking the risk of being in intimate community, which might mean from time to time you get your heart broken, of actually letting people in, It might mean being present in the neighborhood in a way which might actually put you at times in harm's way. It might mean being committed to the good of your neighbors, even in the hard parts of the neighborhood, in a way that puts you at the risk of being mugged or possibly something worse. And I'm not being glib about this, friends. Trust me why my wife keeps me in check about this. Not to be glib or cavalier about this idea. Are we ready for the cost of following Jesus in the neighborhood without which God almost rarely bears the kind of fruit that he intends to bear as his church grows? Are we ready for the Holy Spirit to use our weakness and our apparent failures to advance the gospel in this community in the neighborhood. You know, when you don't really know how to relate to an urban teen, and you're sort of fumbling through it, and you wish you felt smarter or less stupid doing it, but to know that right there in that moment may be the greatest way in which you are demonstrating the weakness of the love of Jesus. Or where you're willing to serve in a way that isn't in your area of strength, but you're willing to be a servant. Or maybe where you're engaging a local neighbor, trying to explain your faith to a a hardened skeptic, and you just feel like, man, I wish I had more answers, but I don't, and I feel kind of dumb about it. But to know just by virtue of having that relationship, perhaps the foolishness and the weakness of that Maybe something that God uses to let his light shine in another person's life. 
You see, if our passion is to make Jesus look good and for Him to be famous here, sometimes that will mean us looking bad, looking a little foolish, being a servant, and bearing our weaknesses. But to have full confidence that when we are weak, then we are strong. That one of God's favorite ways of showing up and pouring out His Spirit upon a people or a place is through things that on the outside look ugly and dead and dying, kind of like a cross. In other words, we are not called simply to be safe and comfy in this mission. As we've said many times before, the gospel calls us to assume some discomfort upon ourselves out of love for another person, to take on discomfort for the comfort of other people. I'll make myself a little bit uncomfortable so that you can be comfortable. I'll make myself a little bit less safe so that you can be more safe, whether emotionally or financially or physically. And the ultimate example of this, of course, is Jesus Christ, who took on the ultimate discomfort of the cross, of the judgment of hell, so that we might know the comfort of the love of God. Dear friends, all of this can be simply and quickly summarized as a call to love. To gather a community that's willing to love across differences and across barriers and boundaries. To love in a counterintuitive way that keeps people guessing because you don't fit so neat and tidily in people's categories and ways of describing quote-unquote religious people. A community that is all these things willing to suffer, full of prayer and full of love. This is the sort of church that we feel like God is calling us to be. You on board. You ready to invite, to gather, to build, to take this to the next phase of what God is doing here. This is the opportunity we have as we move to the Mount Rona Baptist Church building. Not just to physically step on over two blocks, but to re-invite and re-bring and to re-witness and to re-serve and to cast a fresh vision before ourselves of what God can do in us and what God can do through us. You ready? Are you ready? Let's pray. And in the spirit of what we just said, Lord Jesus, we pray to you asking for your help, for your power, for your guidance. Because we can't do this on our own. But it's our joy to be your servants and to be a part of the building of this church and the writing of the story of what you are doing here in this neighborhood. Glorify yourself in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's pray. Uh, Pray, sing. I keep saying that. Let's sing. And let's sing some of these truths into our hearts.